MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. That's singer-songwriter Roseanne Cash singing Seven Year Ache off the 1981 album of the same name. Cash has certainly made her mark in the musical world. 11 number one country songs, 21 top 40 country singles, two gold records, and four Grammys. And she doesn't stop at songwriting. She is also an essayist, an author of several books, including her best-selling memoir, Composed. Roseanne Cash began her career in music, singing backup for one of the most important country music artists of all time, her father, Johnny Cash. Since then, Cash has enjoyed an illustrious career of her own that spans four decades. She released her first album, the self-titled Roseanne Cash, in 1978. I wanted to know what it was like for a young woman starting out in the music business at that time. You know, that album I made in 78, I made in Germany for a European label. I think I was dipping my toe in the water to see if this was actually how I wanted to live my life. Because I I thought of myself as a songwriter. I thought I would write songs for other people. I was shy. I didn't have the need for attention to be a performer. And I didn't want to invite comparisons with my dad. And so I thought being a songwriter is a noble profession. That's what I want to do. And I was already doing it from early teens. But Ariola heard my songs and they said, you know, would you make a record for us? It took me a while to decide, but I did. 
And then I got signed to Columbia in the States. And then, you know, here we are today. But to answer your question, the climate for women then, unfortunately, has not changed that much. Really? It's still very much a boys club. Back then, the programmers, radio programmers would say, oh, we can't put two women back to back on the radio. They still say that. I think maybe what has changed is they don't overtly put their hand on your ass when you walk into the really you know the radio station but it still happens one thing i would expect was that there was a time in the 60s and 70s when they were like you know hey we want to fluff you up for this album cover we need you to pop one more button and do this and do this and they want to just sex up everything to sell the record oh god yes so there was a lot of that back then Okay, so I went into a marketing meeting, my first marketing meeting for my first U.S. album, and it was all men in the meeting. I was, you know, 23 years old, and I walked in and sat down, and straight out, the head of the label said, okay, so our main marketing goal is to make you fuckable in front of everybody to me, 23-year-old girl. I can't believe that. And... I was so flustered, you know, I didn't know how to push back. I was just like, but I'm not going to do that. And actually, it had the reverse effect on me. I I didn't show skin. I didn't like to show skin. Right. I didn't like to play that game at all. Right. I thought, well, I'm a good songwriter. I, I'm good enough without that. It was hubris then because, you know, <laughs> I wasn't great then. I've gotten better. Right. Now, when you write songs, I want to see how this has changed over the arc of time, because you've written many albums over many years. The self-titled album is 78. She Remembers Everything is in 2018. So that's a 40-year gap. And what I'm wondering is, who do you show your songs to? Has that changed when you were younger, when you were a younger woman writing songs? Who would you take it to and say, give me your feedback on my song? And was it your family? Sometimes my dad, yeah, I trusted him. I was very, very careful about who I played my songs to, and I didn't like playing songs to people before they were finished. I mean, I was because I was really territorial. And like I said, I had some hubris about myself as a songwriter. I didn't want interference. I didn't want to get distracted by other people's opinions. But there were really good songwriters I trusted who I would play the songs to to get feedback after I had finished. And that's still the case mostly now for my husband, John, who I work with a lot, who's produced my records a lot. We co-write a lot. He's a tremendous musician, and I trust him. Where did you and he meet? Uh, my first husband introduced us. <laughs> <laughs> And I said to myself, oh, my God, my life is going to get so complicated. Oh, <laughs> and Crowell, your first husband, you did a lot of recordings with him as well. He produced you as well, correct? I, I did. You know, there's something about working with your spouse. If you find a rhythm and a groove and you can stop bringing your personal life into every interaction and fighting, there's something capital R romantic about that. I think so, too. Being yeah, being creative. I've always wanted to work with my wife and do some silly TV show. Just to work with my wife, I didn't really care about what it was, to a degree. Oh, do it. Do it. I thought about it. Yeah, we tried. But So, Rodney Crowell, your first husband, John Leventhal, your current husband, how does that change over time in terms of what you rely on producers for? In other words, this, I, I always wondered, for, for me, who's a complete novice, like does Quincy Jones walk into the studio and say to Michael Jackson, sing it this way? 
Is there somebody who tells you what to do, what they want you to try to do, that pushes you? That would be a little blunt and probably put me off, but I know what you mean. But yeah, they push. I mean, I think that uh, Rodney, when I was young, you know, we were working together, I think he had more confidence in my voice than I did. And he kept pushing, you know, do it this way, try it this way, you can do this. You know, what would you think about this? And even to the point of, you know, method acting, like, what's the spirit behind this? What's the memory behind this? What's the feeling behind this? What's the truth of this exactly? With John, he pushes me even more. And sometimes I just say, I'm not a session singer. Get someone who will obey you because that's not me. (laughs) But it's always in the service of doing something good together. Right. You talk about method acting and the truth of something. There are sections of your biography and periods of your life where you go to Vanderbilt. How long were you at Vanderbilt? A year. It was an incredibly lonely experience. Oh, really? So, and you had gone yeah. there to study what? I double majored in English and drama. I had a fabulous English professor, Walter Sullivan, who was kind of legendary. I learned a lot from him, but I was a little older because I had gone to a year of college elsewhere, moved to London for six months, came back. So I was 20 years old as a sophomore, and it made a difference at that age. And I didn't have any friends And so you'll enjoy this. I went to the Lee Strasberg Institute, and Lee was still teaching there. And I audited his classes. He was so frightening. Did you know him? Yes, yes. He would give a lecture when I went there. I went there 79 through 80 that one year through NYU. I went through NYU. And uh, he gave a lecture periodically. And he was mentioning something about the manipulation of the lobes of the brain. Hmm. And I walked up to him, and he was, he was grasping, and he was pretty old. And I walked up to him, and I don't know why I did this, but I walked up to him, and I said, is the word you were looking for phrenology? And I didn't even know what I was talking about. And he looked up at me, and he went, no. He, like, barked at me. <laughs> no. He snapped. And that's I thought, well, so that's funny. my Lee Strasberg story I'm going to tell for the rest of my career. I studied with a man named Dominic DeFazio. What year? Oh, that was, that was the year before I made... The first record, so that was 77. And I audited Lee's classes and sat at the back because he was so terrifying. And he would do these psychological games with the students. I'm sure you saw this, where he would one week spend the entire time tearing somebody's performance down and having her redo it. And then coming the next week when she came in and did it again, he would just go, very nice, and walk away. Like... So that she was right. always off guard. Right. That's a Strasbourg technique, yeah. Was it really? When I went to Strasbourg, there was one teacher who I've since become kind of friendly with, but somebody would do a scene and there'd be a long pause, a very arid pause, you know, like tumbleweeds are blowing across the stage. <laughs> and this guy would look at the kid and go, why'd you bother? That's all he'd say. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, they really hurt people's That's feelings. Painful. You know, but now when you went to... Vanderbilt for a year, and it only lasted a year. You said you were lonely. You just you, so were you running away from something? Did you say to yourself, "I don't want a music career. I don't want to do this anymore." Now, writing music is one thing. Loving music and being an artist is one thing, as you know. But a career in something is completely different. Absolutely. And did you decide you didn't want a career in that anymore? The career part was troubling me, definitely. But I had been living in London. 
and I'd got my heart broken. I moved to London, and I started seeing myself as an expatriate, and I didn't want to come back. And I was only 20, and my dad, after six months there, he said, you have to come back now. And now why did he say that? Because I think he saw that he would lose me to the family. And he was right. I was going to just disappear. So your father was instrumental in getting you to come home? Not only instrumental, it was because of him that I came home. That's when I went to Vanderbilt. But what was the impetus for you with acting? Well, I love drama. You know, I majored in drama and English in college. I loved plays. I loved the theater so much. And I thought, well, maybe, you know... This is a way I could work out this enormously powerful urge to create in myself. Was writing songs, but I thought, well, maybe this is a form. And then I realized very quickly I was not I did not want to be an actor. Well, acting, it's funny because when I look at your dad, I don't have a lot of I don't want to push too far into the whole well worn talk about your father, who I adored. I mean your father, I mean, I, I was a little boy. Boy named Sue, 69, I'm 11 years old. I'm on Long Island, and I'm there with my little transistor radio listening to Build Me Up Buttercup. I'm listening to Disraeli Gears from Cream. And I'm listening to a boy named Sue from Johnny Cash, and I'm laughing my ass off. <laughs> this guy is the funniest guy. And when you listen to him in that song, and of course I read that he did several films and a lot of TV, he seemed like a guy that was having a good time and laughing and having and having a ball. He was like a joyous guy. And I've seen depictions of him where that seems to be missing. He was kind of a fun-loving guy. He wasn't just a tough guy, you know what I mean? Was he somebody you think might have had a, more of a career as an actor if he wanted to? You just said a lot here that captured my attention and m makes me think about my dad and how he truly was. He had a profound wound at his center, he grew up in really difficult circumstances with an abusive father, and he lost his brother, who was his hero when he was 12 years old. And that suffering created in him the most deepest empathy and compassion for those who suffer. And much of his work came out of that and from our Celtic melancholy roots. At the same time, he was joyous. He loved babies. He loved playing practical jokes. He loved hanging out with kids and being a kid himself. So, you know, he was the yin and yang to the extreme of both of those things. Wow. You see him, his looks, he's so striking. He's so powerful. I mean, I'm not talking about as a musician, mm -hmm. which that's obvious. But I'm saying, yeah. I thought to myself, this guy could have been a great movie star if he really had just thrown himself in that direction. He could have been a great actor. You know, do you agree? Do you know what the first film, we moved to California. I was born in Memphis. We moved to California because he, when I was three years old, because he got a, offered a film. And he thought, you know, his manager is like, this would be a great opportunity for you to go this direction. The film was called... <laughs> Door-to-door -door maniac. Oh, great! And he played. He played the title role. <laughs> oh, he did. Oh, That's enough to cure you of acting. <laughs> no, then he did a gunfight with Kirk Douglas, and he did several things, and he really enjoyed it. Yeah. When you get the call, uh, you're working with your dad. When does the moment come when you're invited to come and sing backup, and then you're going to do a solo? Who brings that information to you? Who tells you? Dad. He does. 
Yeah. He said, why don't you girls, I was out with my stepsister, June's daughter, why don't you girls just come out on the last song and just sing back up on, you know, Will the Circle Be Unbroken or whatever it was. Okay, we go out, we're terrified and shaking. And then I was writing songs, you know, and then he said, well, why don't you come out and do one of your songs? And that's how it, it started. I remember doing this in Prague when it was still behind the Iron Curtain, played 20,000 people. I remember going out and singing a couple of songs in, in that show. That was an experience. Is it fair to say at all that, because it's easy when you have a father who is your father to overlook the contributions of your mother in terms of your career as well. Was your mother influential in the work you did? That's a really good question, and not many people ask it. My mother was so private, hated the glare of fame, hated it, was always afraid we kids were going to be kidnapped because dad was so famous. You know, she was a little tortured by it. And when I went, started writing songs and performing, oh my God, she was terrified, you know, because her her template was you get famous and then you get divorced and you get on drugs and it's a horrible life. And also she taught me discipline, you know, the discipline I have as a writer and as a mother and in my house is because of her. Now, when your father gets remarried, and you talked about you and your stepsister getting into the biz, June's daughter. Was June someone who had any kind of influence on you? Was she a kind and nurturing woman? She had a tremendous influence on me. She was basically crazy. Right. <laughs> and she had been on stage virtually her entire life since early childhood, right? right? So being on stage, there was no glamour to it. It was just a job. It was just part of life, like, you know, anything like having breakfast. She could be having a conversation with you standing in the wings, hear her cue, walk on stage as she's still talking over her shoulder, do her gig, come off, pick up the conversation right where she left it, you know, and her bag of her shoes and her bag of girdles and her bag of makeup in the dressing room and then just gossip, gossip, gossip with her sisters and then go out and do the show. It was, there was no separation between performance and life for her. Right. But what I learned from her is just the assumption of a certain kind of power and authenticity when you were performing. She told me the greatest story. She was on one of those package tours in the South. Back then in the 50s and 60s, they had package tours of a lot of country acts, and they would, they would travel around together and do these shows, multi-artist shows. Well, they're in one place in West Virginia or someplace, and the banjo player for the band that was supposed to go on before her, before the Carter family, didn't show up. So the lead singer in the band is freaking out. He's going, does anybody play the banjo? Does anybody play the banjo? And June says, I play the banjo. And she walks out and she does the show with them, plays the banjo through it. And she told me the story and she said, and honey, I had never played the banjo in my life. My God, the nerve. Yeah. I said, how did you do that? And she said, well, honey, when I walked on stage, I knew how to play the banjo. That has stayed with me my whole life. That's so funny. When you walk on stage, you'll know. Roseanne Cash. If you enjoy conversations with brilliant female singer-songwriters, check out my episode with Carly Simon. 
a little over 50 years ago, a show at the Troubadour changed her life. Three of us rehearsed in New York for three days, and then we went out to L.A., and by that time I had... Open for Cat Stevens. Open, open for Cat Stevens then on thing, April 6th, 1971. April 6th? Yes. And that changed things for you? That was, yeah, that, that was a convincing night. We played two shows every night and four shows on the weekend. I met all, all kinds of people. It, it was like... The, the lights you were, were shining on me. I couldn't, Tag, you're it. I couldn't say no at that point. And, I, and even though I, I was suffering tremendous stage fright, I had various things that tricked me out of being afraid. To hear more of my conversation with Carly Simon, go to heresthething.org. After the break, Roseanne Cash tells us about the Broadway-bound musical that she spent years writing and what that work means to her. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. And the That is the newly remastered version of The Wheel, the title track from Roseanne Cash's 1993 album. I wanted to know what led Cash to re-release the landmark recording. So my album, The Wheel, it's the 30th anniversary. I just got my masters back from Sony. After 30 years, there was a 30-year reversion clause. And I didn't expect how that would feel to own my master 
to this album. And it's, it was like a spiritual experience, like, wow, this is mine. It's not part of a multinational corporation anymore. And it had never been released on vinyl. In 93, nobody was printing, pressing vinyl. And so John and I started a record label, Rumble Strip Records, and the first release is going to be this remastered 30th anniversary edition of The Wheel. I wrote new liner notes for it, double vinyl with a live performance from 93. And I don't generally like looking back at my old work. You know, I'm still really excited about what's coming up. But I feel like this was a watershed moment in my life. It's the first album John and I made together. We fell in love making that record, ended up getting married. And the songs are intense. They're about transformation. And I'm proud of it. I'm, and I, Some of it sounds dated. Some I go, oh, my God, I wish I had sung that better. And yet it captured a real moment in time, like you said, the truth. And I'm proud to be re-releasing it. For people who don't know, one assumes that a lot of that is on a technical side. They're going to sweeten the sound and they're going to get computers in there to make it sound even better than ever. Is that what you do? Do you, other than the liner notes and so forth, do you really hand this over to somebody to enhance the sound technically and there's not much else for you to do? No, I wouldn't say enhance as much as just in remastering, you know, they might modernize it in some way. Like there might be too much highs on one track that they just bring down slightly. So it's not so much enhancement as just kind of bringing it to the future, to the present rather. Right. When you record and you sing, I mean, I don't mean to sound weirdly technical here, but do you sit on a stool or do do you feel you have to stand in order to sing? I like weirdly technical questions, by the way. Yeah. No, I stand what I'm singing. You do. I, I don't like to squish my diaphragm. You don't. And who tra- did you have any training as a singer? Did anybody train you? I did. I studied with a few people. And, you know, technical stuff, breath control, vibrato, you know, pre- preserving energy, opening your chest, placement in the either the palate or the back of the throat for different uh-huh. tones, you know, really technical stuff. In New York, L.A., London, where? New York. In New York? Mm-hmm. I took singing lessons once. I was at a party, and Cameron McIntosh was there. And Cameron McIntosh said to me, Mr. Baldwin, I'm producing a Broadway musical based on the Witches of Eastwick. Mm. And I would like you to come in and meet with my producers and my designers and so forth and my my vocal people and, and have you consider playing the role, uh, the lead role that Jack Nicholson assayed in the film. We're in front of all these people at this big event, and I said, I'm really sorry I don't sing. He said, nonsense, Mr. Baldwin. He said, you can be trained to sing. He said, anyone can sing with the proper training. He said, I want you to come meet my man, John Lyons. I want you to come and speak to John. And he's going to work with you. I said, you don't understand, man. I mean, I really can't sing. I'd love to. I have the soul of a singer. But my voice is just in shreds. It's like sandpaper. He said, Mr. Baldwin, please. He was almost looking at me like, I'm Cameron McIntosh, you idiot. I wouldn't waste my time or yours with this suggestion if I didn't think it was possible. And he said, please go see John. Thank you. So I go. We go somewhere in, uh, near the Ansonia. There were like a lot of dance classes and rehearsal studios. And I go to this guy's apartment. He's got the piano there. And we sing. He goes, I want you to prepare two songs. Something up-tempo and something like a ballad. And I I sing, Come Fly With Me. The Frank Sinatra song, Come Fly With Me. And I sing, Come Fly With Me. And I sing the song. And he goes, Oh, Mr. Baldwin, let's stop. Now, I want you to do this. 
and try try to do this. And, I, and after like my fourth or fifth round of doing singing the song, he stops and he goes, "Mr. Baldwin, you're correct. You can't sing." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I thought, my God, it's the, it was like, it's like they shot me and wrapped me in plastic like in The Sopranos and threw me in the ocean. <laughs> my, my career was over. It was dead. It was dead, dead, dead. Well, I'm impressed you tried it. One, uh, one singing teacher I had, or one voice, he was actually a voice vocal therapist because I had polyps a couple times and lost my voice and had to go on vocal rest for months and steroids and blah, blah, blah. And at the end, you know, your voice has kind of fallen apart at the end of having polyps and has to be literally rebuilt. And so Bill Riley, who's a big guy in town, he he helped me rebuild my voice and Shirley Tennyson also helped me rebuild my voice. And he told me that he could tell if someone could sing by looking at their facial structure. Really? Yeah. I think he meant something about where the cheekbones are sitting or anchored. Like are the baffles and the chambers, I would always hear referred to, are they there? Are they in there? Maybe, but it's also about looking at the well of the larynx, too. He, He told me that Pavarotti had a larynx, like the well inside where his vocal cords are, looked like no one else's that had ever been, you know, whatever they put down there to look at him. Now, I'm told you're working on a musical. A musical, yeah. Whose idea was that? It was John Weidman, who wrote Assassins. He wrote the book for Assassins, rather. Oh, my God. I worship John Weidman. So do I. I think Assassins is, I mean, Assassins is something I can never stop listening to just for the lyrics. John is so special. Yeah, well, Sondheim's so special, too, but... The two of them together are special. Yeah, no kidding. So he wrote the book for the musical I'm doing, um, which is Norma Ray. So I'm the lyricist. John Leventhal's the composer. John Weidman's the book writer. And we've been working on it about six years. We've had two workshops and some rewrites, and we have a theater interested. So I'm hoping fall 2024, I hope, we'll get it staged. Why did that material appeal to you? I mean, it was a hit movie, but why beyond that? Well, uh, several levels. It's set in North Carolina, so the idea of bringing this kind of genre-bending, Appalachian, Sondheim-ish musical hybrid together was a fascinating idea. And I got to say, John Leventhal, man, he knocked it out of the park. It's The music is so great. And also for me, as a lyricist writing and the voice of other characters, that was such a thrill, such a challenge. And also the story, you know, it's like a union organizing, which is so timely, but also at the center of this, this woman's transformation through helping her community, also so timely. So it it kind of checked all the boxes. In the first two years, I said, I'm never doing this again. I hate this. And in the last, the last four years, I said, I absolutely love it. What was daunting for you? Well, writing in the voice of characters who I didn't have any experience with, who I didn't know, you know, an older man working in a textile mill in North Carolina in the 70s. How do I find his voice and his sense of poetry? It's not mine, you know, but who is he? That And that ended up being really... I don't know. It it touches your empathy, and 
going from there into their sense of poetry and their experience, it's been uplifting for me. How familiar were you with the film? Did you have to go back and watch the film, or did you not want to watch the film? Norma Ray? Yes. No, I was familiar with the film already, but yes, I, I went back and watched it again. Not only that, I did some research about textile mills in the South and what happened to them and race relations in the South in the mills and union organizing. And it was fascinating. I have a friend in Alabama who took over an abandoned textile mill to create her own bespoke factory of handmade items, of handmade clothing, and hired all of these women who had worked in the textile mills and lost their jobs after NAFTA. And so her mission was kind of in my mind, thinking about all of this. And, you know, and the sadness of the guy coming down from New York to help organize the union and it happening. And then the textile mills all close later on. Well, when you see, this is my opinion, but when you see dramas or musicals, let's stick to dramas, that are on stage that are adapted to film, whether it's uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or Streetcar or things like that, that seems less dicey. You know, you're going to go open Mm -hmm. it up and you're going to put the camera where you want to and you're going to bring all the cinematics that you want to bring to it. I mean, I think that in general, it's better when it goes from stage to screen than the reverse. And on Broadway a lot now, you know, are these Disneyfications of films and stuff, which is, you know, it's like a ride at an amusement park or something. And I get the appeal of that. But I like something that's taken seriously. I don't know why I was thinking about the dresser when you were talking about oh, that. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh. And and they kept it oh. as if it's a stage play, too, you know, oh. with Anthony Hopkins and Ian McCollum. It was so wonderful. Oh, I can't believe you mentioned that, because I, I just did a reading of that play the other day. Did you really? Are you going to do it? Well, a group of us were on Long Island, some friends of mine who live out there, out east, and we decided we just wanted to read a play, and we had a couple of ideas, uh, and this was one of them. So we did a reading, a bunch of us, and it was really a thrill. You know, what I mean, it's it's not it's not much different from the movie. Yeah. But there's another a situation where I mean, I'm somebody who's not immune to being overwhelmed by other people's work. Yeah, me too. And I must say that there are a few things in cinema that I find more powerful and more overwhelming than Finney in that movie. But when you do something. It, it's like, I'm sure you're the same way with Norma Ray. Mm. you got to realize you're doing it for yourself. Absolutely. But it's that, that way for everything. Yeah. Every record I make, if I get out of myself and try to go, well, what will please people? It's death. You know, it just destroys, it takes all the life out of it. If you try to copy the marketplace or try to please too much, I think Dylan said that once, that people pleasing was death to an artist. And I believe it. Self-consciousness is death to an artist, yeah. I believe that. Yes, self-consciousness. That's even a better way to say it. Singer, songwriter, Roseanne Cash. If you're enjoying this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend. And be sure to follow us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we return... Roseanne Cash shares how writing her memoir helped reclaim her family's story and her own.
there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. When the shadows lengthen And burn away the past They will fly me like an angel to a place where I can rest When this begins I'll let you in September When it comes This is Roseanne Cash duetting with her father Johnny Cash on September When It Comes off her 2003 album Rules of Travel Musical talent seems to be passed down among the Cashes. Roseanne Cash has five children, three with her first husband, one with her second, and a stepchild. Some have even followed her into the family business. I wanted to know how Cash managed going on the road when she was raising her children. It was less important than raising the babies. I have to right. say, I, I toured less than everyone else around me, and it was a constant source of, you know, angst for my manager. Because I just... I have a really healthy alarm system about what's too much and what's not enough, you know, as far as kids and as far as my private life and being home. And I have no illusions about the glamour 
of the life I lead, you know? I mean, I saw that firsthand with my dad. It's like, it's it's hard work. It's not glamorous. And I wanted to be there for the parent-teacher meetings and the plays. And <laughs> so I made sure I was. Now, two more things in the time we have left. So you've written a memoir, correct? Mm-hmm, yes. And what was that process like for you as a creative person? I love writing, or as Lillian Hellman said, I love having written. Um, <laughs> of my family story and my own story had been co-opted by the public in such perverse and diverse ways over so many decades that I finally thought, if I don't tell my story, at least plant my flag and tell my story, then it will just keep getting co-opted. And even if it is, at least I've said it. So that's why I wrote a memoir. I thought I was too young to write a memoir in 2010, but, you know, I can write a second volume. And I constructed it in a way like Bob Dylan's Chronicles in that it wasn't completely chronological, that it was about reappearing patterns in my life and how songs were attached to them and anchored those different eras and patterns in my life. And, you know, it was a self-organizing principle, too. I realized many things about my life that I hadn't by writing about it. Do you listen to much contemporary music or no? I do. You do? I got obsessed with this Billie Eilish song she wrote for Barbie. Oh, my God. One of the most beautiful songs I've heard this year. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And my son is a a record producer. He's almost 25. He produces a lot of indie bands and indie artists. You know, he's in Brooklyn. And so I hear some of the people that he's producing, and I'm I'm interested in them. And I I love kids. I do. I, I love young people. Me too. Yeah. You know, my sense of your career, of your work, your writing this Norma Ray thing, and you talk about possibly another volume of something biographical. I mean, I'm saying this because I truly believe this, you know. I mean, I always find... I was blown away when Springsteen went on Broadway. Yeah, I loved that show. Loved it. And, and I, you want to know something? You could do that kind of show. And we'll keep our eyes peeled for Norma Ray. That sounds thrilling to me. Thank you. And how lucky they are to have you. Thanks, Alec. It's so good to speak to you finally, because I have admired you for so long that it was such a joy to get to speak with you. Thank you. You too. My thanks to Roseanne Cash. Catch her at City Winery in New York City on November 28th and 29th touring in support of the 30th anniversary of The Wheel. You can find additional tour dates at rosannecash.com. I'll leave you with Roseanne Cash's Blue Moon with Heartache from the 1981 album Seven Year Ache. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Maybe I'll just
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one.